BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up in the science revolution is Mad King Trump deciding which states will live and which states will die. Associate Professor of Economics Pavlina Cherneva is here to talk about what would FDR do about COVID-19. The last Democratic governor of Alabama, Don Siegelman, drops by to talk about how prisons are handling the coronavirus and what they should do. In geeky science, attorney and regulatory policy advocate with public citizen Amit Narang is here asking why Trump is fighting clean car standards instead of the coronavirus. Stay tuned. Mad King Donald, he has gone full Joe Stalin in the last week or so. Joe Stalin, you'll recall, killed tens of millions of Russians and did it the same way. Trump is helping his friends and he's punishing his enemies. Not entirely the same way, but Donald Trump is using the lives of millions of Americans to help his friends and punish his enemies. I mean, people are dying and will die because of this. Red State Oklahoma told Trump that they needed 16,000 face shields. These are the large plastic, transparent plastic things that come down over, cover the entire face that, you know, typically you use for like orthopedic surgery and things where blood and bone are flying around, but usually they're not used. But these are really important right now. I mean, the latest report that had Poppy Harlow and Jim Shuto just totally freaked out on CNN is something that I think we've known for a while, but now has been like super confirmed, is that this virus is transmitted simply by breathing. You ever smelled somebody's bad breath? I think we've probably all had that experience. We smell not by radiation. If you're listening to my voice, you are listening to sound radiation. It's vibrations in the air. It's a form of radiation. It's not a particle, it's a wave. If you have your eyes open, if you can see, you are seeing light. That's not particles, those are waves. But when we smell something, we're smelling little tiny particles, little tiny pieces that float through the air. And so, you know, if you can smell somebody's bad breath, what you're smelling are little particles that are being emitted by their lungs and by their mouth in the process of talking, typically, or simply just breathing. Well, it turns out that those little tiny particles can be coronavirus particles. And just literally being in the air where somebody else was breathing even minutes or hours in advance, depending on the circulation in your office or in your room, means that you can pick up the virus from them. And the biggest problem we have right now are these, you know, uninfected super spreaders, uninfected but non-symptomatic people. So anyhow, Oklahoma, red state Oklahoma said to Trump, we need 16,000 face shields as a primary layer to keep those particles from hitting people's eyes where they can cause an instant infection. This is out of raw story, and it was originally published by David Badash, B-A-D-A-S-H, of the New Civil Rights Movement. I thought it was Politico. I misspoke. The Trump administration is sending red states like Florida all the coronavirus personal protective gear that it has requested. Ron DeSantis, who's refused to close his beaches, Florida said, okay, that's it. We're shutting the state down. This is terrible. 
The Washington Post reports officials in Florida have pointed to the close relationship between DeSantis and Trump as a helpful tool in reshaping federal policy. The two speak almost daily. And Trump will probably need the 29 electoral votes of his adopted home state to win re-election. The Post suggests it was DeSantis' complaints that fueled Trump's threat this past weekend to quarantine the tri-state area. You know, DeSantis, he's going to be in deep trouble. In the next month, Ron DeSantis is going to be over his head in dead people. And people are going to be trying to point the finger at him. And he's going to be trying to say, oh no, it's people from New York who came down here. Don't you know it started up there first? And it was DeSantis who said to Trump, let's blame all this on New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. In fact, Trump made that statement hours after he talked with DeSantis. One White House official said that Trump is attuned to the electoral importance of Florida in November, giving added weight to the arguments DeSantis has made to the administration that his state's economy should remain open. This official said, quote, the president knows Florida is so important for his reelection. So when DeSantis says that, it means a lot. He pays close attention to what Florida wants. And here's how it played out. The Post reports, this is the Washington Post, quote, three days after requesting 430,000 surgical masks, 180,000 N95 respirators and other equipment on March 11th, Florida received all the items. The state received an additional shipment less than two weeks later. As of last week, it is awaiting a third shipment. I mean, Joan McCarter is reporting this over at Daily Coast. Oklahoma got twice as many N95 masks. Red State Oklahoma got twice as many masks as they requested. Red State Florida is getting a third shipment from the feds. They got 100% of what Ron DeSantis asked for. Blue State California, they got 170 broken ventilators. New York State is still begging for supplies and equipments, while Red State Kentucky received more than they actually asked for. Blue states Massachusetts and Illinois are getting a fraction of what they need and have asked for, and this is criminal, if not legally, certainly morally criminal. Adam Schiff has called for a 9-11-style commission to investigate Trump's delayed response to the coronavirus. I mean, he doesn't say Trump, but, you know, the why did we botch this? You know, when they put it together, they need to investigate how Trump is deciding which states will live and which states will die. Because that's clearly what's going on here. And it's wrong. I mean, it's wrong, capital W-R-O-N-G. It is so wrong. Pavlina Cherneva, associate professor of economics at Bard College, former economics advisor to Bernie Sanders' campaign, also a research scholar with Levy Economics Institute and author of the forthcoming book, The Case for a Job Guarantee. The website is Pavlina, P-A-V-L-I-N-A-Cherneva, T-C-H-E-R-N-E-V-A dot net. And P-T-C-H-E-R-N-E-V-A is her Twitter handle. Pavlina, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. Or I should say, Professor, welcome to the program. You wrote a brilliant piece for Project Syndicate titled, What Would Roosevelt Do? And you go through, you know, how should the government respond? And you have the various steps that you would prioritize. You want to run through that for us? 
Yeah, this is not your garden variety recession. It's not even comparable quite to the Great Depression, although we may see the sort of unemployment levels we saw then and even higher. The Federal Reserve is forecasting up to 30, 32% unemployment. So we are in for some very rough times. We cannot respond to those with conventional stimulus measures as they're conceived today. And the lesson from Roosevelt is mobilize. Mobilize today, mobilize tomorrow. So, you know, we have some very concrete things we have to do today. We see the acute shortages in the healthcare sector. So right now, at this moment, we need to mobilize not just production of medical equipment and protective gear and ventilators and all of that. We also have shortage of staff in acute areas, manning the phone lines from the 911 phone lines to dispatchers, to training nurses, to attending to the elderly. So there is still a fair amount of work to be done, even as we do social distancing. And we also need to think very hard about protecting those who cannot work and are losing their jobs. But we also have to think a little bit past the next two or three months and think about an economy that is going to have to reopen, turn on the lights, with a lot of people who are unemployed. And my message for that time will be mobilize again. Yeah. So to what extent is this something that's done by government versus something that's done by people, businesses? I mean, how do you break that out? And what would FDR say about, you know, the current response to this uh, crisis? Yeah, I mean, the big burden of responsibility on dealing with this crisis falls on the public sector. This is why we have a public sector to provide the necessary investments and protections when all of us face some sort of existential crisis. And we have for so many decades lived and accepted this rhetoric that the government can't do much and it has to be downside and it's been assaulted with austerity after austerity that we are wholly unprepared. And so we have, you know, both this ideology that's hanging over us and at the same same time, we don't have the bold measures that this this time calls for. So I think, you know, <laughs> if Roosevelt were to look at what we're doing today, he would say, you're dilly-dallying. You've got to start mm. thinking about planning, about investment, direct investment in these critical areas I was mentioning. But even tomorrow, we need to directly go to the heart of the problem, and the government will have to lead It has to do the heavy lifting in terms of public investment and public employment to recover the economy. But right now, if we were to try to do something like the New Deal, where FDR hired millions and millions of unemployed Americans and put them to work doing everything from painting murals to building dams and planting millions of trees, um, people are not supposed to leave their homes right now. I mean, this is a crisis that, to the best of my knowledge, has never really been confronted before. I think you could argue maybe the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, but I don't recall that Woodrow Wilson did any huge stimulus measures or dealt with that the way that we're having to deal with this. What, you know, short of infrastructure and construction projects and employer of last resort, I mean, I love going back to FDR's second new deal, you know, the, the right to housing, the right to an education, the right to health care, the right to a job that pays well. Three of the four of those could be done during this time. And a right means, of course, that the government guarantees that you have it or prevents others from taking it from you. Where specifically would you start with all this if you were okay, uh, today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, today, we have to pay people to stay home, no question about it. So even mm-hmm. even the term stimulus is not the appropriate term at this moment. But what we could do, and 
listeners should be very clear that we just passed an extraordinary package in $2 trillion, you know, about 10% of GDP, literally overnight. And that package is wholly inadequate in terms of the provisions to protect families and states and the healthcare providers as well, but families in particular. And then, of course, it has, you know, a very generous corporate bailout in there. And so what we need to do is definitely protect people and incentivize them to stay at home without the fear for their jobs. And, you know, I did some very back-of-the-envelope calculations and found out that if we went the Nordic route, if we decided to pay for the government to pay a proportion of the wages for those who are threatened, we actually have many times over the budget. The budget that was passed is enough to pay everybody's wage for the next three months. So we have the firepower, we have the financing, but we have gone the wrong way. And so I would have done every measure possible to protect jobs now because it's so much harder to create jobs tomorrow when you're faced Mm -hmm. with avalanche of jobs. So that would be the first thing that I would do. But the second thing is, you know, Roosevelt, like you said, with the second New Deal, he wasn't just thinking, well, let's just provide employment for the unemployed. He asked the question, what is the role of government? How can we secure some basic economic rights? And we need right. to ask that and, question and today. Yeah, I am absolutely with you. It's thought-provoking. It's brilliant. What would Roosevelt do by Pavlina Cherneva? And Professor, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking with you, and I wish you the very best. And let me just mention again, the book is The Case for a Job Guarantee, and it'll be coming out shortly, so check it out. Pavlina Cherneva. Well, I got an early copy of Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation by former Governor Don Siegelman, political prisoner number one. It's absolutely an amazing story. The last Democratic governor of Alabama, 1999 to 2003, Don Siegelman, he was the lieutenant governor from 1995 to 99. He was the attorney general from 87 to 91, secretary of state from 79 to 87. This is a guy who knows politics. They were talking about him in 2002, 2003 as a potential Democratic nominee for the 2004 presidential run. And then he got in Karl Rove's sights. He challenged the machine, the Bush machine. And Karl Rove, who used to live in Alabama, took him down, sent him off to prison. It's an amazing, amazing story. And on the line with us right now is Governor Don Siegelman. Don, welcome back to the program. It's been a while. Oh, Tom, thank you. I'm glad to be back. I wanted to talk to you about Oakdale Federal Prison, where you lived for five years or where you were incarcerated for five years. First of all, how did you end up in jail for five years after 100 federal state attorneys general said what you did was not a crime. What happened? I was targeted because I was the one Democrat that Republicans couldn't beat fair and square. I won re-election in 2002 only to have the vote changed overnight by Carl Rove's client. Well, Carl Rove's client seized the ballots, refused to let me have a recount, which forced me to concede the election to my Republican. I made a pledge to come back and run again in 2006. It was at a time when Jeff Sessions was interested in running for governor, and it was his retired FBI agent, Sessions, who, of course, Trump appointed as attorney general, had been U.S. attorney in Alabama, and it was his retired agents 
who built the case against me first in 2004 and then again in 2006. The prosecutor was vetted by Carl Rove. Attorney General who started the investigation was Carl Rove's client. The U.S. prosecutor who brought me to trial one month before the election, her husband was managing my opponent's campaign, and he was also Carl Rove's business partner, political partner in Alabama. You know, I could go on. Jack Abramoff, who was Carl Rove's bagman, brought in $20 million from the Indian casinos across the uh, Mississippi right next door, and they funneled that money into various organizations to bring me down. The judge was vetted by Carl Rove. Anyway, you get the story, get the picture. Yeah, it's all in the book, and people really need to get this book, Stealing Our Democracy by Don Siegelman. Uh, Let's talk about Oakdale, if you don't mind. It seems like it's an epicenter for the coronavirus. What's the latest out of there? I'm guessing you're still in touch with people that you met there, that you knew there, and you're certainly paying attention to it. I do get almost daily reports, usually through a third party, and they are expecting things to get worse. They're putting up a military-style tent on one of the prison grounds. According to the inmates, an entire dorm of 200 people have been quarantined. They're starting to take the temperature of, it's a little late, they're starting to take the temperature of prison guards as they enter the prison. The situation is grim because it was ground before the virus. Inmates are stacked one on top of each other in bunk beds, sometimes three deep instead of just two bunk beds, one on top of the other. There's a third bunk bed on top of that. They're placed so close together, you can actually reach out and touch the other bed when you're lying down. So it's an environment that's made to perpetuate a virus. There's yeah. no protective fields or any way to prevent inmates from breathing in what's exhaled from another prisoner. NPR this morning was reporting that only nine inmates there have tested positive, 32 have symptoms, 64 have been exposed, 15 inmates hospitalized, eight staff members testing positive. This suggests to me, if they're not testing every single person in that prison, this is gonna just burn through that prison in short order. What can Americans do who are concerned about our brothers and sisters who are in prison all across the United States, Don? Well, I think the most important thing is to do what I've been doing and writing and calling, texting and emailing members of the House and Senate Judiciary Committee. They have been active. They are working. Gerald Nadler is is on top of it. But I think that the more people who express a concern about it, the more will be done. But the problem is that this is like shooting fish in a barrel for the virus. I mean, it, these people can't move. There's no place for them to be sequestered or isolated or quarantined where there's no way for them to maintain social distancing, even when they are laying in So we need bunk. to get people out of these jails now, right? Isn't that a really important part of it, particularly in parts of the country where the virus hasn't spread through the entire prison population? Get those people out of jail? Absolutely. Nonviolent inmates who are in there for some petty crime ought to be released, put on home confinement. They've got electronic monitoring. This stuff could be, yeah, you could make a big difference in that way. I mean, otherwise we're going to have hospitals turning into a massive morgues. I mean, it just, it's just, and then on top of that, I'm thinking about all these children and young people who are being held in cages in concentration camps being run by ICE around the country. They're in the same boat, aren't they? 
Absolutely. Yeah, it's an incredibly dangerous situation. And for those of us who are isolated, quarantined at home, you can walk to the refrigerator or you know, go outside, but these people can't move. Yeah, yeah, it's so, a very, very bad situation. Former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman, his new book, Stealing Our Democracy, How the Political Assassination of a Governor Threatens Our Nation, and it really does. I've blurbed the book. It's brilliant. You need to get it. Don Siegelman, thanks for being with us, Don. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high. It, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-Leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to N-U-Leafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-Leafnaturals.com. Code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M, newleafnaturals.com. On the line with us is Amit Narang. He is an attorney and regulatory policy advocate with Public Citizen, citizen.org. His Twitter handle is T-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E, Triptych. And Amit, welcome to the program. Hey, nice to be back with you, Tom. Hope you and all your listeners are safe and sane, or, or at least safe. Thank you for joining us. Tell me about Donald Trump's while he's doing his daily reality TV show in the afternoons on TV, and everybody seems to talk about that, his agencies, his regulatory agencies, the EPA, the Interior Department, etc., they are hard at work. What are they up to? You know, the one thing that has not shut down under the pandemic has been the Trump administration's relentless quest to roll back consumer worker environmental and generally public health and safety regulations. And we're at a critical stage here with the Trump administration nearing the end of its first term. And so what the administration is trying to do is uh, to not let the pandemic stop their finishing touches on their anti-worker, anti-consumer, anti-environment deregulatory agenda. It is pretty conspicuous to see the agencies moving full steam ahead, maybe even uh, trying to go faster to rush these rollbacks out the door and finalize them while they are, you know, basically otherwise directing all agencies to just focus on pandemic response and any regulatory issues related just to the pandemic. So today, we had one of the most consequential and damaging rollbacks that we've seen during the entire Trump administration. That's the rollback of the clean car standards. Those are the the fuel efficiency standards that President Obama put in place that would not only save consumers an enormous amount at the pump, but obviously would reduce carbon emissions, clean up pollution, and slow down climate change. Trump administration, despite the pandemic, decided today was a good day probably because a lot of folks are 
distracted, of course, with the pandemic and not really paying attention to get out this rollback and finalize it. Because these clean car standards, not only did it make 100% policy sense, good for the environment, good for consumers, frankly, good for the auto industry in terms of giving them certainty. Uh, yeah, the automakers supported support. these, didn't they? Exactly. This is a really going to be a problem. It's a lose for the automakers. It's really only a win for the oil and gas industry because consumers, of course, will be pumping a lot more gas at the pump and paying more money for it, of course. And that goes right in the pockets of right. the oil and gas industry. And that's why the public supports higher fuel efficiency standards, cleaner cars, supported the Obama clean, clean car standards. And so this is why the administration would rather the public is not paying attention as they get this out. So I'm glad that you're shining a spotlight on it, Tom. Charles Koch is probably the most conspicuous oil industry oligarch in America and has played a, a leading role, he and his late brother, David, in building the right-wing infrastructure that powers essentially the Republican Party and the right-wing media world. Are there other fossil fuel oligarchs that are funding the Republican Party so extensively that the party would basically put the health and lives of Americans at risk in exchange for their continued support? I mean, the oil and gas industry just generally has an enormous amount of influence over the Trump administration, both the EPA, also the Department of Interior. Of course, the Department of Interior is run by a guy named David Bernhardt, who is a former oil and gas lobbyist, the current EPA head is a former coal lobbyist, Andrew Wheeler. So it's not only some of these ideological warriors like the Kochs uh, or, or just Charles Koch now, who certainly have a business interest, don't get me wrong, to try to uh, gut any regulation that hits into their profits. But it's the industry itself that has essentially made, you know, the EPA and the Department of Interior subsidiaries of the industry. I don't really think there's any other way to describe it that's not overstating it. There's just so many conflicts of interest in this administration, folks, that come straight from the industries that these agencies are supposed to be regulating at arm's length. And instead, they're just turning these agencies around into factories to produce whatever the the wish list of the oil and industry is demanding of the Trump administration. The Koch brothers, they've been obviously very impactful when it comes to environmental regulation, but it goes broader than that. It, it is an ideological push to try to reduce you know, the ability of the government to protect the public. And honestly, we're seeing it in this pandemic. You know, it's kind of crazy for me to be seeing the president and lots of conservatives on down argue that we should reopen businesses in the face of the pandemic because the cost to business outweigh the, the benefits of saving lives by implementing social distancing. But that is, that's just a feature of just how much these kinds of ideological warriors have pushed our government to look at policies that save lives, that protect the public's health and safety through an economic lens, first and foremost, and not through the lens of what do we value in our government? What should our government should be doing? Which I think most people believe right now, saving lives and not trying to avoid short-term costs that will cost lives and, and frankly will destroy our economy in the long run. Yeah, I, th I, I think you're absolutely right. The EPA and you know this regulatory structure by and large was put into place back in the 70s. It got knocked back a little by Reagan and George W. Bush, but it's, it has survived all this time. It's being gutted now by Trump. How long, assuming Trump loses and leaves office in, you know, in November and January, how long will it take to rebuild the Interior Department? 
I mean, it could take a better part of whatever the first term of the next president would be. I mean, that's a long amount of time. And we do not have that time when it comes to climate change and pollution and pushing the auto industry to give consumers more fuel-efficient cars. We've lost a lot of time under the Trump administration just on climate change. And frankly, that takes certain policy options that may have been on the table in the past taxing carbon, the one that comes to mind, it really takes it off the table because those are the types of measures that would have worked if we had more time to fight climate change. But we've lost that time. And so we do have to look at more drastic, radical measures that are needed to save the climate on the much shortened timeline that we we now have. And, you know, this is a, a common again. We, we constantly are having our government wait too long to address crises. And then we have to take drastic action to fix it. So it seems. Amit Narang, he is with Public Citizen. He's an attorney and regulatory policy advocate with Public Citizen. Citizen.org is the website, and Triptych is his Twitter handle. Amit, thanks for dropping by. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.